This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm JP Tasker, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Tuesday, December 19th. Canada's fight to drive down the cost of living has stalled. Could the latest inflation numbers mean higher interest rates for longer? And the federal government announces a plan to sell only zero-emission vehicles by 2035. We'll ask the Environment Minister about this roadmap and the auto industry's concerns. Plus, Statistics Canada is reporting the fastest population growth in 66 years. The power panel debates whether Canada's economy can keep up with immigration. We begin with a snapshot of Canada's cost of living crisis. Here's the country's inflation rate for the month of November. Unexpectedly, it remains stuck at 3.1%. Economists had projected it would drop. Peter Armstrong is the CBC's senior business correspondent. He's here to explain what this all means. Peter, let's start with the numbers. What's keeping inflation above 3%? It's shocking news. I, I don't think anybody would have possibly guessed this, but it's interest rates, right? Like the the mortgage, the uh, the mortgage interest cost, which is the main way of measuring how interest rates have worked their way into the the, the cost of your uh, living, up twenty nine point eight percent, right? So we knew this was coming. We've been seeing this for months, where everything else has been slowly, you know, the rate of growth has been slowly coming down. Prices aren't, but the the price growth has been really moderating. We've seen this great progress. Everything else except for mortgage interest rates, rent, a couple other little things, you know, even food. You look at food with such a big problem. It was up in the double digits. It's down to 4.7%. That's down from like 5.6% last month. So we're seeing all of this progress. The last place that we're not going to see progress, of course, is mortgage, mortgage interest costs and the way that sort of translates into shelter costs. And that's going to cause a problem because, remember, only about 40% of mortgage holders have actually renewed at these new higher levels. So there's this whole wall of new mortgage renewals that are coming into the economy that are going to smack right into us uh, in the first half of, of next year. So, you know, it's not surprising, but it really is telling to see where we're at in sort of the narrative around, uh, around inflation. So what does this mean for interest rates then? Are you expecting some cuts next year, Peter? Yeah, I, I think it's no longer a question of whether we'll see cuts, but a question of when. Uh, you know, C.D. Howe Institute has this great sort of, uh, you know, survey of monetary policy experts, and, and they're all sort of guessing. And you can see when they put out their numbers that it's like some are saying as early as March, some are saying as late as June. I don't think any of them are expecting uh, we won't see a cut before June. If you look at, at markets, they have the, the interest rate swaps. They tell you there's about a 70% chance that interest rates will be cut by the end of April. Uh, so, you know, I, I really do think it's a question of when, but it's also, JP, a real question of how much, right? You, you look at Desjardins economics, for example. They have interest rates by the end of 2024 all the way down to 3.5%, others closer to 4%. So I think the, the schedule is going to be interesting in the, the pace of how quickly are they going to cut because, as, you, as we've seen, these, in, these inflation numbers are showing progress. The last bastion of, of trouble on the inflation front really is uh, these mortgage interest costs. So if, as you bring those down, you can sort of alleviate some of the trouble that there might be a less than soft landing in the economy and try to, to really stick that landing in the, the first half and into the summer in, of next year. All right. A lot of mortgage holders nervously watching to see where this <laughs> all goes. Thank you, Peter. CBC's yeah, Peter Armstrong. Great. The federal government wants all new vehicle sales in Canada to eventually be electric, and today it announced a plan to get there. By 2026, 20% of all vehicles sold by automakers must emit zero emissions. That share jumps to 60% by 2030. 
with the end goal of phasing out all gas-powered trucks by, and cars by 2035 and offering only electric. Automakers that miss those targets will be forced to pay up. Stephen Gilbo is the Minister of Environment and Climate Change. He joins me now to discuss the new regulations. Sir, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So why should Canadians be forced to buy a zero-emissions vehicle? Actually, Canadian wants to buy uh, electric vehicles, and unfortunately, uh, they can't. There's a long waiting list, six months to almost two years for, for certain models. And we've seen sales in Canada triple over the last three years. So there is clearly a demand. And the reason why we're putting this availability standard in place is to ensure that Canadians can have access to those vehicles, which are cleaner and more affordable for, for Canadians to drive. But not every Canadian wants to buy one. There was a recent J.D. Power report that uh, came out just a few months ago, and it found that two-thirds of Canadians are reluctant to buy an EV. And that's, to me, an eye-popping figure. That tells me a majority of people don't want anything to do with these vehicles. So how do you bring them on side with your plan, Minister? I think what what I've seen, and I used to work on, on electric vehicles a lot before my time in, in, in politics, and once people have tried it, um, eight, if not nine out of 10 Canadians prefer sticking to, to electric vehicles. So there's a lot of perceptions and preconceptions about electric vehicles, you know, them not working in the, in the cold, about the battery ranges. And those Canadians who have adopted electric vehicles, by and large, don't want to go back. So what we're proposing is that by 2035, we progressively uh, make it easier and easier to, to, to buy electric vehicle. And so 12 years from now, 100% of new vehicles sold would have to be uh, electric vehicles, but people who have gas-powered engine would be able to continue using them past, past 2035. They just wouldn't be able to buy new ones after 2035. I want to get to the cold weather and the range issues in a second, but let's just zero <coughs> in on cost right now. A lot of people... The reason they say they're not buying an electric vehicle is because it does cost considerably more than an internal combustion engine right now. And there is a federal incentive that the government has rolled out. It's about $5,000. But a Ford F-150 Lightning, the F-150, the most popular model in Canada, the electric equivalent goes for about 80000 right now. So cost being a big issue for people, does Ottawa have to step up? Does it have to up its game on incentives? Well, two things. On average, the cost difference between a gas-powered vehicle and an electric vehicle is between three and $7,000. So the $5,000 incentive by the federal government is pretty spot on. It will, it will fully compensate for some vehicle, not quite for, for others on average. Uh, we're not going to the extreme price range here. And uh, number one, but number two, when, when you look at um, the purchase of a, of, of a vehicle, you have to look at the operating cost. And there's an independent study by, uh, by Clean Energy Canada that shows that over a 10-year span, the electric vehicle will enable Canadians to save $3,000 per year. So $30,000 over a 10-year period versus a comparable uh, sedan, for example, electric versus gas-powered. So they are real benefit because the electricity is cheaper than, than gasoline. Uh, you don't see price volatility with, with electricity as you're seeing with, with the price of oil and, and therefore the price of gasoline. The price of maintenance is, is much cheaper. So they are real economic benefits for, for, for Canadians uh, going electric. 
There may be economic benefits for consumers, but a lot of the automakers are not really feeling those economic benefits, especially here in North America. We'll get to China in a minute, but Ford just cut its EV manufacturing in half. General Motors slashing $2 billion in planned spending. A lot of the car makers are saying that they don't see the same sort of sales demand that they were expecting. They don't really see demand meeting supply right now. Is there something that you know that the car manufacturers don't? As I was saying, uh, in the last three years, we've seen sales in Canada triple. We went from 4% at the end of 2020 to more than to more than 13% at the beginning of 2023. And we're not at the end of the year yet. Uh, in Quebec, it's more than one in five vehicles sold is an electric vehicle. In British Columbia, one in four. So there is clear, clear demand. And, and in fact, we've seen in Canada investment of $34 billion dollars uh, in part by the federal government, provinces, companies like Volkswagen, Stellantis, GM, and, and Northvolt, and, and many others. So the transformation to electric vehicle is happening in Canada, it's happening in the US, it's happening in Europe, it's happening in China, it's happening pretty much all over the world. I mentioned China. They're a big beneficiary of your mandate. They're really the world's leading electric vehicle manufacturer. Let's show our audience there's been a 2,700% increase in Chinese electric vehicle imports to Canada. We know China, of course, has an appalling human rights record. Their mining practices are questionable at best. These vehicles are built largely in coal-powered car plants. The industry is controlled by the communist government. Does any of that give you pause? Well, certainly when you look at our entire electrification strategy, what we're doing, we're investing $1.7 billion in the critical mineral sector to ensure that we can get those minerals in Canada, that they can be processed either in Canada or by some of our allies, whether it's the United States, Europe, Scandinavian countries, um, to, to ensure that we can be less dependent. Because right now, it is true that the world depends for many of these components largely on China, but many of Canada and many of our allies are working together to change that. But 90, 90% of all electric vehicle batteries in the world are somehow dependent on China right now. Are you concerned about handing over boatloads of Canadian cash to China, given what we know about how they run their country? Well, most of the electric vehicles that are sold in Canada are made in North America right now. It is true that we've seen an increase in sales from Chinese vehicles, but it, we, you know, it went from, from nothing to, 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 to a bit more. Uh, but the most sold vehicle, electric vehicle sold in Canada right now is a Tesla manufactured in, in, in North America. And China, uh, so right? They have a huge gigafactory in Beijing, in Shanghai. So. Yeah, but that's not, that's not where we're getting our Tesla from in, in, in North America. We're getting them from, 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 from North American manufacturing, manufactured Tesla. The, the ones that are mean, made in China are for the Chinese market. They're not selling those cars here. Um, and, and again, I mean, what we're, tr what we're trying to do is to, and, and it's not just Canada, we're working with many of our allies to be less dependent from, for, for, from Chinese components. Um, because the world is moving towards the electrification. Like there's no, there's no doubt about it. Uh, just, just three years ago, one in 25 cars sold in the world was electric. Uh, last year, one in three on, on, on average, one in five, my apologies. Uh, on average in in the world so we're it, this is where the world is heading but we need to ensure that we can diversify our 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 our, our components uh, and and be less dependent than china and that's why the federal government is investing massively to make that happen in canada 
there has been an uptick, as you say, but it does seem to have plateaued. I mean, at least what, that's what the car manufacturers are saying. They're concerned. They don't want to pump out any more of these cars, or at least on the scale that they were hoping to do, because there is not really that demand right now. They are dialing it back significantly. And what they're hearing from their customers is that range anxiety is a big part of it. People are worried about having access to a charging device when they're running low on power. And it's not just access to a device. It's also, in many instances, I was looking at one study today, a quarter of all public chargers aren't working at any given time. They're broken. There's network issues. What's your message to people who are anxious about this new technology? Well, I mean, the sales figures that we're seeing, whether it's in Canada or elsewhere around the world, as I said earlier, that the sales have tripled in Canada. So this this idea that the demand isn't there, that's not that's not what the data is showing us. Uh, in, in BC and in Quebec, where they, they've put in place similar programs many years ago, um, their sales are two to three times what we're seeing on, 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 the, on the national average. And, and what is true of Canada is true of the US, it's true of Europe, it's true of many places in, 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 in the world. You know, when, when Henry Ford developed the Model T, he didn't say, oh my goodness, you know, there's no, there, there's no gas stations. How will I be able to sell my, my vehicles? He built it and, and, and everything came, 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 came with it. And that's what we're doing in, in Canada. And you should also remember that 80% of, ve- of electric vehicle owners will charge at home. Their, their, their gas stations will be, will be the household. So there is this 20% of customers who, who, who need public charging stations and, and people when, when they go longer, longer distances, like not commuting for, for, for work, for, for example, which is why the federal government has invested so far in the installation of, of 10,000 charging stations in, in Canada, which brings the total to 25,000 stations. And we'll, we, we will triple that number by 2029. We will be around 85,000 charging stations across the country, which on a per capita basis will put Canada in a fairly advantaged situation compared to many of our, of our competitors, whether it's the U.S. or many European countries. This plan seems fine if you live in a suburban home in a major city, but what happens if you live in a condo? I mean, I was looking at data today from Natural Resources Canada. Only less than half of Canadians actually have a garage. So a lot of people don't have a garage. So if you're going to force people to buy a car that has to be plugged in, what do those people do? As I said, you don't have you don't have to have a garage to, to be able to charge your, your vehicle at home. 80% currently in Canada, 80% of vehicle owners charge at home whether they have a garage or not uh, what we're seeing in in, in many urban uh, urban areas and we're seeing that in canada we're seeing that in many european countries for example is, is that you will have reserved parking space and i i see it in my neighborhood reserved parking space for electric vehicles where people can charge overnight uh with uh, with, with charging stations that are deployed by by municipalities across across the country we're seeing charging stations being deployed at, at the workplace so more and more it's going to be easy to to charge an electric vehicle than than it is today in fact in, in quebec for example there are more charging stations for electric vehicle than there are gas stations so so we are seeing a very rapid deployment in in some parts of the country and what we're trying to do as a federal government is to ensure that we see that from coast to coast but do you not see it as a problem that so many people don't have a garage so they're supposed to leave their car on the street overnight and hope all is well and charge it in some public space like it does seem like that would be a huge stress on the system will there be enough infrastructure for all the urban dwellers that don't have a garage that that's what that's what's happening now uh, sales have tripled and in 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 the last three years and some people have access to home charging stations some people use public tr- public charging stations 
seems to be working just fine. So you mentioned Quebec and BC a lot, but of course this is a big country and there's a lot of rural and remote areas. And Alberta Premier Daniel Smith was raising some major concerns today, saying this mandate makes no sense for people who live in the country where there's very little charging infrastructure, where the temperatures drop well below zero, and there are concerns about range on some of these vehicles. What do you say to people like her and the people she represents? Well, first, the technology is improving quite rapidly in terms of range, uh, in terms of temperature, uh, but also the the regulation we, we announced today, the standard, the availability, sta- availability standard we announced today also has provisions for plug-in hybrids, which, as you know, have, a, have an electric in- engine as well as a gas-powered engine. A plug-in hybrid will give you anywhere between 40 and 80 kilometers of autonomy on your batteries, and then you'll switch to, to, to gas, to to go to good old internal combustion engine, which is perfect for, for, for rural remote areas where we don't have yet been able to deploy the, tra- the charging network that we need. And, and remember that, you know, we're phasing this in over the uh, over 12 year period, like it's, it's not happening tomorrow morning. Uh, it, it is going to happen progressively between now and 2035. So we have time to deploy the infrastructure. But for, for those people who still want to use gasoline engine, the plug in hybrids are, are a perfect alternative. Okay, let's leave it there. Thank you so much to the Minister of Environment and Climate Change, Stephen Gilbo. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Canada is deploying three military personnel to a new U.S.-led maritime protection force in the Red Sea. The Red Sea is one of the world's most important trade routes. An estimated 15% of global trade transits through the Suez Canal and the Red Sea, a key link between Asia and Europe. But Houthi fighters in Yemen, angered by Israel's war on Hamas, have been targeting ships traveling along the vital trade route for weeks now. They have launched drone and rocket attacks and even hijacked one vessel. The string of violence is forcing major freight companies to abandon the Red Sea route and instead take the much longer and costlier journey around Africa. All countries have the right to move freely and lawfully in international waters. But that foundational global right is under new threat today from the totally unacceptable attacks on merchant vessels by the Houthis in Yemen. Retired Vice Admiral Mark Norman is a former Vice Chief of Defense Staff of the Canadian Armed Forces. He is now a Senior Defense Strategist at Samuel Associates, a consulting and government relations firm that assists clients with securing government contracts, including defense procurement contracts. Retired Vice Admiral Norman, thanks for your time today. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, JP, and thank you for your interest in this really important subject. Yeah, before we get to Canada's contribution, first let's uh, get your take on the situation in the Red Sea, these Houthi attacks on container ships. Just how dangerous is this situation, do you think? Yeah, well, it is It's significant uh, for a couple reasons. First of all, it is an unfortunate uh, spillover or adjunct to uh, the developing crisis in the Middle East uh, with uh, additional malevolent actors um, trying to interrupt uh, Western interests. And uh, even more significantly beyond the geostrategic applica- or implications are the economic implications. Uh, if you remind your viewers of the ship that blocked the Suez Canal a couple years ago due to a navigational error, you get a sense of the potential economic impact closing down this vital uh, maritime waterway could have on global trade. 
Yeah, 15% of all the world's shipping actually transits through the Suez, Suez Canal, everything from gas to yogurt, right? It is a huge economic artery for the world, so any sort of blockage in there is a problem. The U.S. and the U.K. to try and relieve some of this has been patrolling the Red Sea. They have been shooting down some Houthi drones and rockets, but that so far has not deterred this group. Uh, you know, even the response from the broader multinational protection force, uh, there seems to be one that's being stood up now. Even in the, even with that being on the table, the Houthis are vowing to continue what they're doing now. Do you think that this protection force will have any impact? Will this free things up a bit? It may. Um, as it relates to the economic impact, it'll depend on the level of confidence that the uh, global shipping companies will have in the measures that are being taken by this allied force. Um, this is uh, sadly not first time we've had this type of problem in that region. And uh, the Houthi, uh, like many of these other um, terrorist organizations in the region, are looking for um, opportunities to disrupt and uh, send a message. And uh, it's an extremely difficult problem to solve. And it won't be solved necessarily at sea, although that's going to be a key component of it. Um, this, uh, this will probably require forces of some type going into Yemen and rooting out the, the, the rebels uh, at the source. And I'm not seeing that uh, in the near term. So you expect the U.S. might have to strike Houthi targets in Yemen? I, I'm not sure exactly what course of action they're going to consider, but the reality is that uh, in, until uh, the West can stop them from launching these attacks, it's one thing to interrupt the attacks, which is what the efforts are going to be focused on at the moment. It's another thing to uh, figure out how to stop them f from the beginning. And, you know, the Allies have been operating in this region for um, almost uh, two decades now in a variety of different forms, and this uh, combined maritime force has lots of experience um, but, you know, this is the latest version, if you will, of an ongoing problem, which is uh, off the coast of Somalia and elsewhere uh, in the past. Let's talk about Canada's contribution to all this. Uh, Bill Blair, the defense minister, announcing today that they are not going to be sending a ship. Instead, they're sending just three Canadian staff officers to the area. What's your reaction to what Canada's committed so far? Well, uh, sadly, my reaction is disappointment, but not disappointment in terms of the government's commitment. It's disappointment in terms of the reality that the Canadian Armed Forces are facing and the fact that, uh, to put it bluntly, the cupboards are bare. Um, and this is a reflection of um, a pretty sad state of affairs. Um, I think those staff officers will be supplemented by additional um, staff going forward. As I said, we have long-standing relationships with those with those organizations, and we will do good things. But uh, you know, there will be a call for uh, forces on the water, and unfortunately, Canada can't respond to that. Um, and uh, we'll see where this goes. There, there could be an aviation component, but again, I'm not sure we have uh, the bench strength uh, necessary to even support that request were it to come. I'm sure you saw what Vice Admiral Angus Topshi uh, put out there just a few short weeks ago, the commander of the Canadian Navy really warning about the state of affairs and how they don't have a lot of manpower, they don't have folks that can staff some of these ships uh, that are in circulation right now, they just don't have bench strength. They do not really have the ability to deploy widely across the globe to meet some of Canada's obligations. What do you make of what Topshi put out, and how do you see things in the Canada in the Canadian Navy? Yeah, so uh, regrettably, Admiral Topshi is trying to manage um, 
a problem that's been decades in the making. Um, it, it's been made more acute in the last few years, but it has been um, building for some time. And uh, fundamentally, it reflects um, decades of both underfunding and risk management decision-making within the machinery of government that puts off important decisions until uh, it's later and somebody else's problem. And as a result, we now have an armed forces that is woefully understaffed, woefully under-equipped, and unable to make uh, the kinds of significant commitments internationally that um, a country of Canada's international stature should be able to provide. Yeah, I guess when we talk about three Canadian staff officers going to the region to help with an artery, like we say, that controls 15% of global trade, that is really reflective of the Navy being woefully understaffed, isn't it? It is, and I, even even that particular organization, uh, CMF, um, we would have supported ships and uh, long-range patrol aircraft on a rotational basis, um, you know, up to a few years ago, and uh, it's just a reflection of the fact that we, we don't have the capacity to do it any longer, and I think that that is both um, un unfortunate and uh, concerning. And, uh, you know, the world, uh, as we're seeing things play out here, the world is getting increasingly complicated and incre increasingly less secure. And uh, we don't seem to be able to contribute in the way that we should. Uh, and our, our, uh, our capacity is not matching our rhetoric. Yeah, as you say, global security continues to erode year after year. And it, if it keeps trending in this direction, you know, we have Ukraine, we have Israel, have the Red Sea now, we have ongoing concerns about the state in Taiwan. Uh, you know, is Canada prepared militarily? I know you're a Navy man, but when you look at the armed forces overall, do we have the capacity to respond to all these challenges? Well, we have very limited capacity to respond in very specific areas. Um, but we don't have uh, a lot of breadth and we don't have a lot of depth. And so, um, you know, we're supporting uh, NATO in Latvia. Uh, the Air Force is, uh, is trying to deliver new fleets and therefore has limited capacity, but has been operating in the Western Pacific. Uh, the Navy just got back from operating in the Western Pacific. But as, as we're discussing now, we just don't have, we can't turn things around and we don't have the kind of bench strike that we need to have. So, we will always do something, um, but I, I think, unfortunately, the three staff officers that we're seeing as a token response at this point is, is uh, indicative of a deeper problem. Okay, let's leave it there. Thank you to retired Vice Admiral Mark Norman, former Vice Chief of Defense Staff of the Canadian Forces. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much, JP, and thank you to your viewers for taking an interest in this important topic. Thanks. Canada's population growth is booming. New data out of Statistics Canada today shows the population grew by more than 430,000 people from July to October this year. Much of that has been fueled by immigration, with the Liberal government hoping to welcome 500,000 new permanent residents by 2025. The Conservative leader wouldn't name an immigration target in a recent interview with True North's Andrew Lawton, but he did lay out what will drive his thinking. It will be mathematically driven not by arbitrary targets to generate uh, virtue signaling headlines as we have right now. It will be mathematically driven by the growth in the housing stock, the growth in the supply of doctors and nurses to treat people, and the availability of jobs. 
It's time to bring in the power panel. Melanie Riche is a senior consultant at Ernst Cliff, and here with me in studio, Vanguard Strategies CEO Michelle Cadario. Kate Harrison is vice chair at Suma Strategies, and the CBC's Aaron Wary. Nice to see all of you. Thanks for joining us tonight on this Tuesday. Uh, so, Kate, I'm going to start with you. It's interesting. You know, Pierre Polyev released that documentary, as he called it, that uh, kind of long ad on housing a couple weeks back. And he really put the blame on the prime minister, but he really danced around the issue of immigration. He didn't actually, he didn't even address it in the video. He didn't mention that there has been so many people coming in, and that might be one of the reasons why we're seeing so much Mm -hmm. price inflation. What do you make of his comments there? And is it a tough political situation for him to be weighing in on numbers, to be maybe downplaying the role of immigration in all this? Yeah, I I don't think so. I think the the thing to keep in mind, of course, is Polyev, similar to kind of the Stephen Harper school of thinking, uh, recognizes that immigration is necessary in order to keep the economy moving. Uh, We continue to have a huge number of skills gap and shortages and uh, immigration is a big part of solving that problem. I think what he's identifying is that there is a difference between uh, charting out a macro number for the sake of a macro number and making sure that we have infrastructure to actually support the number of new immigrants that are coming in. And I think that's largely reflective of where the Canadian population is at. There's, you know, in other countries, the dynamic is different. South of the border, uh, you have a stronger contingent of folks saying, you know, we're, we're anti-immigration altogether. That's not really the conservative thinking, at least in Canada. It's we're pro-immigration, mm-hmm. but are we doing it in a way that makes sense where we can have uh, enough housing, enough hospitals, enough schools to actually sustain that. So I think that he's in line with where most Canadians are on this. Yeah, Michelle, does he have a point that maybe immigration should be tied to the number of homes, the number of doctors? I mean, I, I'm kind of obsessed with doctors' figures. I've been doing a lot of stories this year on this. Um, and I want to look at first-year medical residency spots, okay? So this is the number of new doctors that are going into the pipeline. In 2018, we had 3,300. In 2023, we had 3,500. So we had 224 more resident doctors in a five-year period, 7% increase. We've added, in that period, um, 4 million more Canadians. So we're clearly, there's something wrong here. I mean, we can't just not be graduating enough doctors. We can't be building not enough homes and yet welcoming so many people. Isn't there something, isn't there a disconnect there maybe? Well, there's no question that it's very hard to balance all of this. But let's also just, if you want to talk about doctors, how are we going to get more doctors? Well, we're actually going to have to bring them into the country, Mm -hmm. right? We're going to have to figure out ways to actually recognize their credentials, bring them up to Canadian standards, and get them out there into rural, remote communities especially, but even into all of our bigger cities. So, you know, part part of solving some of our Um, core issues with respect to infrastructure. We need workers. We need people who are going to build these houses. We need people who are going to build the infrastructure. We need, you know, we have a very low jobs rate. The only way that Canada's economy grows, the only way that Canada grows, is is by bringing in more people. Mm-hmm. And you need those people to actually build this infrastructure that we're talking about. So, you know, you know, I'm not sure what kind of signaling that Mr. Polyev is doing with his, we're going to be cautious on what a number, and like that's, you know, mm-hmm. Mr. Harper had a very, had pretty much the same number that um, Mr. Martin did or Mr. Kretchen did. And, you know, we have continued to be a country that has to bring in hundreds of thousands of people every year just to keep our economy moving so that we can all actually enjoy the standard of living that we do. Yeah, you, on the doctor's issue, I don't want to don't want to prolong it, but it's interesting. Like we bring folks over, and then they can't be credentialed. It's so difficult. They they always make a big thing about we're bringing in foreign healthcare workers, but then they can't actually work here because the the red tape is just enormous. But uh, that's for another day. Melanie, what do you make of this uh, the, of Polyev tying immigration numbers to housing starts and the availability of doctors? Is he onto something here? 
Yeah, I think it's, you know, I don't, I don't think I say this very often, but I actually agree with most of the points that, that both Kate and Michelle were saying. I think uh, we need to be careful that we are not making a problem worse, whereas we're not um, making sure that we have enough housing for people and we're making sure that we have access to healthcare in a way that people need that access. But a lot of those roles will be filled by um, immigration, by immigrants coming in. Uh, what I found interesting about one of the things that experts had pointed to um, as it relates to, so how do we then fix, you know, this, we don't have enough housing, but we need immigration, but what if we have too much? One of the things that they kept pointing to is actually something that Democrats and Labour has, has floated for a while, is the Temporary Foreign Workers Program. And what I thought was interesting from those experts is they were saying that the program, the way that it's set up, doesn't totally work because... People are coming in and we don't actually have those and it's not necessarily workers who are going to be staying here for a while. So I think if we were to take a look at that, it could be a solve for both making sure that we're keeping our immigration numbers the way they need to be so that those jobs are filled, but that we're not increasing the pressure on other markets like the housing market, like our healthcare system, uh, etc. We gave you, Aaron, the population growth figures for the last quarter, but let's just give you the figure for the last year. So in the fourth quarter of 2022, there was 39,276,000 people. Now we're at 40,500,000. So almost 1.3 million more people in the country in just a year's time. I mean, that's massive growth rates. That's that's like something we haven't seen in nearly 70 years. Do you think the government has been attentive to, enough to the to the issues that come with a massively growing population? I mean, I think to a certain extent, the you know dealing with the with the sort of accommodations that you need to deal with when you're increasing immigration are always going to lag the the idea of increasing immigration. Uh, and you've seen, I think, to a certain extent, that reflected in the polling. You know, the the, the support for immigration in Canada has softened somewhat over mm-hmm. the last year. Uh, but the problem, and I think you probably see this reflected in 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 Mr. Polio's statements, is that. You know, while immigration support for it has has softened, if you are if you if you kind of pull the reins back on immigration uh, hard, you're just sort of trading one problem for another. You, you know, the ultimate solution here has to be both both you know increasing immigration and increasing the household the the stock of homes. Uh, and I think that's you know kind of the politics and and the practicalities that that Polyev and to a certain extent Justin Trudeau are both running up against is it's not so much a question of you know do you increase immigration or not it's can you build the houses fast enough to accommodate uh, uh, a growing population which is not to say that immigration is the entire problem for for housing but you do if you if you are increasing immigration and it looks like housing is is running short then immigration is the sort of thing that could get blamed for it yeah and kate it looks like we're not building enough homes right to accommodate all these folks i mean the housing starts in november 257,000 units so that's there people were excited about that in the industry the cmhc was touting that as a good number mm-hmm. you know that's quite high comparably speaking to what they've had in other months but it's still not much, right? When I just said a million, 1.3 million people in the last year, they're only going to build 257,000 units over the next year. So yeah. there seems to be a disconnect. Here. Yeah, there's a there's a huge incongruence there. And it's also, JP, not just about housing. It's all the infrastructure that has to go to us to support housing. I think it was the, the head of the Bank of Nova Scotia today had some really choice comments about uh, immigration in Canada and pointed to the fact that we would need to basically establish a London, Ontario once a quarter in order to sustain the uh, amount of houses needed to support immigration levels at what they currently are. So um, it's all of the you know water and sewage and everything else that's needed 
needed to support that. We're talking about a really expensive proposition. So, you know, the accelerator fund and some of the other programs are are incentives, uh, but there needs to be a much bigger fix across multiple levels of government to really tackle the problem as opposed to just endless cash. Michelle, we've, as a country, dodged a lot of nativism, right? We have been a welcoming people. We have welcomed people in and there hasn't been a ton of political discussion about it. It's kind of, as you were saying earlier, like settled from Cretchen to Martin to Harper. Like everybody agrees that we need to have some more folks to keep the economy moving along and just to enrich our country. But is there something to be said for support declining? I mean, we've seen, as Aaron mentioned, polling numbers suggest that people maybe are less supportive than they were. Has the Liberal government put that national consensus at risk? Well, you know, I think that you have to look at the times too, right? When it's uh, tougher economic times for families, then I think that there's a lot more inward respect, um, reflection. And uh, when people are struggling to, you know, pay for the groceries and when inflation rates are this high and gas is high, housing housing is high, then, you know, you're, you're looking for, for external causes. And uh, unfortunately, um, if people are starting to talk about that there's all these new people coming to Canada, um, then that's kind of how that kind of conversation starts. And let's also remember that we're, we listen a lot to what's happening in the U.S. And there's a whole very toxic discussion going on led by one of the candidates for the Republican um, you nomination. Not be named. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, who talks about that all the time. Mm. And, you know, last week he was saying outrageous things um, about immigrants. And, uh, you know, that spills over our borders. And, uh, and so I worry about that, and I think that that makes it even more important for the government to be very clear, to actually be really talking about this in a wholesome way and explaining kind of all the different levers that go into it, and maybe not having to say that they've got the absolute solution to every problem, but at least acknowledging it. And I think that you we're starting to see that more from the government, and I, and I think that that will, will heed them. Melanie, are you worried about support falling away for immigration in this country? A little bit. I think that that's the threat that uh, immigration is used as a tool to divide people instead of you know, bringing people together when you're feeling squeeze um, and you have factors like say, well, the reason you're feeling that way is because of your neighbors or the othering that we're seeing um, even, you know, in, in a, the UK um, as well. I think that that would be a shame. It's it's good to see that that isn't playing in, in Canada at the moment. I also think that um, politically in Canada, both, you know, all, all parties do rely on, on immigrants and on, on those communities to turn out and, and vote for them. That might also be one of the reasons why we're not seeing that, that divisive report. But I think that is definitely the risk if um, housing isn't addressed, if, you know, the healthcare system isn't addressed and um, economically people are still feeling a squeeze. That's a threat that, that folks can start blaming their neighbors instead of really blaming uh, the lack of policy. Aaron, Aaron, final word to you. Yeah, I think it's easy to, as Melanie says, kind of scapegoat immigration, but I think that's the key thing to keep in mind is that it's a scapegoat. It's not the problem isn't that, you know, you're bringing in too many people because the economy needs it. There's a reason we're bringing in that many people. The problem is you aren't building enough houses or, as you say, you know, training enough doctors. So solve those problems. Uh, you know, maybe focus on solving those problems rather than, than sort of trying to make an easy answer out of immigration. Yeah, I mean, there's already 300,000 people on a waiting list in Nova Scotia to get a family doctor. And I just think when you add many more people, it just 
you're setting people up for a whole lot of frustration. Okay, let's leave it there. Thank you very much to the Power Panel, Melanie Riche, Michelle Cadario, Kate Harrison, and Aaron Wary. Thanks for joining me, guys. That was fun. Thank you. Thanks. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow our pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern. I'm J.P. Tasker. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.